Welcome. I'm Leslie Cannon. I'm Mary Gavoni. I'm Linda Harvey. I'm Olivia Wan, and together we are the Compliance Divas. Welcome to the Compliance Divas podcast. My name is Linda Harvey, and I will be your moderator for this episode. Today, the Compliance Divas are going to be talking about returning to work after you have COVID. We know that everybody's been vigilant about doing so and having a safe office, but let's talk about the facts and recommendations from the CDC. Please remember that we bring clarity and simplicity to compliance by navigating the regulatory world to keep you on course. We invite you to subscribe to the Compliance Divas podcast through your favorite podcast channel or on our website, thecompliancedivas.com. And as always, any resources that we mention during our podcast can be found on the Compliance Divas website. And we invite you to submit questions to support at thecompliancedivas.com. No doubt you've seen the CDC updates as well as all the dental newsletters talking about the triple virus threat and how it's surging. The Divas spoke about it in episode number 78, where we spoke about these infectious outbreaks. This overlapping virus outbreak has been dubbed the triple-demic. These three viruses are the seasonal influenza, RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, and COVID-19. This podcast focuses not so much on how to protect yourself or what PPE to wear, but rather when should you return to work specifically after having COVID-19. You may recall the CDC issued the number of updates for, to the interim COVID-19 guidelines back in September. And while the Divas discussed those revised guidelines back in episode number 73, now with the cases rising again, it's prudent to revisit your COVID-19 plan and your return to work policy. So Leslie, could I call on you first? Could, can we please talk about what somebody should do before they return to work? Does it make sense to, to actually find out if you have COVID or just not assume? What would you recommend, Leslie? Well, Linda, that's what the experts are telling us is that really we should know what it is that we have. And uh, so before we can talk about when someone can return to work, it makes sense to determine if someone actually does have COVID. And uh, it's important, of course, the graphs that there are several different viruses circulating, COVID, flu, and RSV, as you mentioned. And uh, it's difficult to distinguish since many of them share the same symptoms. So it's useful to know what virus you have and that helps helps, of course, uh, with whatever treatment you should receive and how long you should isolate. But there are certain hallmarks um, or symptoms uh, or of how the illness progresses that can help you differentiate from each virus. And so there are what they call five factors to consider. Uh, first of all, there are some symptoms that are unique to particular viruses. Runny nose, a cough, a congestion, or sore throat can arise because any of the three viruses could cause that or even a common cold. But when there's a loss of taste or smell, it's more commonly associated with COVID than it is with flu or RSV. Wheezing is often a telltale sign of a serious RSV infection. Uh, and again, they've uh, said on the, the experts have stated that this is uh, usually found in kids or older adults, but we don't want to rule out the fact that, that anyone could be infected. So it's important to get uh, an idea of what the symptoms and signs are for each. And symptoms onset is one of the important factors to look at. With RSV, it's gradual. With flu, it's sudden. And with COVID, it could be gradual. 
Now, another thing to be looking for, uh, and again, the only way to be certain is to get tested, of course, but um, we want to look at how long it's been since you've been exposed, if you can figure that out where you might have contracted what you uh, are experiencing. So illnesses oftentimes have different incubation periods, which is the time between exposure and the symptoms. With flu, the symptoms tend to develop within a couple of days after exposure, whereas RSV tends to take four to six days. And COVID's typical incubation time is three to four days for the Omicron variant. So as you can see, it's rather confusing to determine exactly what you have. Certainly testing is important. But uh, also, as we have heard uh, with RSV, it is unlikely that it's going to make a healthy adult feel sick, whereas COVID and flu certainly will. So it's important to know what, what viruses are circulating in your area or in your community as well. And uh, again, testing is always important uh, and keeping an eye on what the local COVID transmission levels are. Since so many people are using the home test these days uh, versus like an RSV or a flu test that's done in a doctor's office, uh, it may be very difficult to determine what the actual transmission is and the levels of transmission. Leslie, those are some great points. And I really appreciate how you talked about the different viruses and, and being in tune to what's going on in our local communities. Could you recap those five factors as a takeaway from this section for our listeners, please? Yes. Uh, first of all, remember that some symptoms are unique to particular viruses. So uh, you'll need to know what the symptoms are for RSV, COVID, and flu. Uh, also, whether those symptoms, second hallmark, uh, are those symptoms coming on gradually or all of a sudden? Uh, third, how long has it been since your exposure? If you know when you were exposed or you can anticipate or, or predict when you may have been exposed. And then fourth, uh, age makes a difference. For example, RSV we mentioned is not for healthy adults. We might find it more likely in children or in elderly folks. And then we also want to consider which viruses are circulating in our community at the time. Fantastic. Thank you for that wrap up, Leslie. Those are some great takeaway points for our listeners. Olivia, let's chat for a moment about once it's confirmed that a team member has COVID-19, when should they return to work? What does the CDC tell us about that? Sure, Linda. And nobody likes to hear the answer. It depends, but it depends on multiple factors. Uh, one, what is the health of the worker, whether the worker is immune compromised or not. And also, Linda, it depends on the severity of the illness with COVID-19. So let's start first with a healthcare worker who has infection. So they've already been diagnosed, so they have infection. And we look at the fact that if they have the presence of uh, they're immune compromised, then the healthcare worker is very seriously would need to monitor their own symptoms and seek reevaluation. So really it may be longer for the individual who has these underlying medical conditions compared to a worker that is not immune compromised. So let me give you an example, Linda. Let's look at a healthcare worker that has only mild to moderate illness and they're not severely immune compromised, then they could return to work at least seven days since the symptoms first appeared if there was a negative viral test obtained within 48 hours prior to returning to work uh, or 10 days if testing is not performed 
or if a positive test at day five through seven, and at least 24 hours since they've had fever without using fever-reducing medications, as well as symptoms that have improved. It doesn't mean that symptoms go away, because we understand some people might cough for weeks, but have those symptoms improved. So this is different than someone who has a severe infection as well as immune compromised. Then we look at a healthcare worker who is asymptomatic throughout their infection, and they're not moderately to severely immune compromised, then they can return to work after seven days have passed since the date of their first positive viral test, if a negative viral test is obtained within 48 hours prior to returning to work, or 10 days if testing is not performed, or if a positive test at day five through seven. Now we look at a healthcare worker with critical illness to COVID, but they're not moderately to severely immune compromised, then they could return to work after the following criteria is has been met, which is once again, at least 10 days and up to 20 days since the symptoms first appeared and at least 24 hours without fever and not taking any fever reducing medications symptoms have improved, the test-based strategy as described for the moderately to severely immune compromised healthcare worker can be used to inform the duration of work restriction. So we can see how it varies. Now, a healthcare worker who is moderately to severely immune compromised may produce replication com competent virus beyond 20 days after symptom onset for those who were asymptomatic throughout their infection. So once again, Linda, really, we have to assess the overall physical health of the worker and also the severity of the infection to COVID. So I think it's very important for the safety coordinators to download this material from CDC so they have a quick reference when they're having to deal with staff members with varying conditions and also having COVID. So true, Olivia. So true. And this was some very content rich information. So let's tease a couple pieces out if you mind. So I like the fact that you mentioned that it depends on somebody's personal health history first. Um, nobody likes to hear the word depends. Everybody likes to have a cut and dry. You can come back to work in five days or seven days or 10 days. We want to have something that's just one way and we don't treat our patients one way. So we can't treat our personal illnesses the same either. So depending on someone's personal health history, if they have any underlying conditions uh, that could cause them to be immunocompromised, for example, and then looking at the severity of the illness, how sick is somebody with, with COVID, and then rely on the test. So the CDC is still recommending having a test. And I appreciate the fact that you mentioned seven days, Olivia, because many of our offices we know are choosing to come back after five days with the symptoms resolving and probably aren't really testing. So uh, that's a key factor because we know that during the crisis capacity staffing, the CDC was recommending or allowing, if you will, in their guidelines, putting some flexibility in their guidelines where in crisis capacity situations, healthcare workers could come back to work after day five. But that was primarily for hospitals when they needed staff in the emergency room and ICU wards and so forth, not a dental practice. And we know even though it's a crisis when we have folks out sick in a dental practice because with a small team, it stresses everybody out. It's um, challenging days when team members aren't there. But nevertheless, we still want to be careful that we're not spreading COVID because ultimately, Olivia, we all remember that 
If COVID is spread in your office to another employee and that employee ends up in the hospital because of COVID, that is reportable to OSHA. So just kind of looking for all those different pieces and making sure that all those things fit together. So let's put a link so and the show notes and on our website resources so that our listeners can download this information, have it in their office, and then talk about it at team meetings. So thank you, Olivia. That was great. Mary, let's talk about some situations, if you don't mind, when a team member is exposed to someone who's got confirmed COVID, what should offices do in those kinds of situations? I agree with Olivia's statement from before. The the statement we don't like to hear, it depends. And it does depend on um, what type of a procedure was being performed. Was it an aerosol generating procedure or a non-aerosol generating procedure? Or was, and the really critical factor is, was that employee who had the contact with the patient um, or perhaps another um, employee who maybe have COVID, was it considered to be a prolonged exposure? Were they wearing the right PPE if it was a patient that, that was being treated? So there's a number of things that have to be taken into consideration. First of all, um, a prolonged exposure is classified by or described by the CDC as 15 minutes or longer over a 24 hour period of time within six feet. That's where the six feet social distancing um, came in so that if that person was coughing or sneezing or talking, um, that may um, create some type of droplet particles that they could be exposed to. And then we need to look at if it was a patient procedure, was there appropriate eye protection so that the eyes, mucous membranes of the eyes would not be exposed? Was there appropriate respiratory protection? And we are told by both OSHA and the CDC that appropriate respiratory protection um, for aerosol generating procedures is an N95 respirator or higher and were we wearing um, obviously gloves and and gowns and so forth to protect from that exposure. So depending on the facility, if the exposure happened at work, then we need to be following the testing protocol that we've been talking about before um, to make sure that this person did not become COVID positive as a result of their exposure at work. But what if the exposure happens out in the community? Um, many people don't necessarily test um, if they were exposed to someone out in the community or maybe in their home, a family member, um, if they don't have any symptoms. And as we stated earlier, that even if you've had a high-risk exposure, but you don't have any symptoms from a community exposure, you don't have to have a work restriction, but this is a whole different sort of set of rules. Um, if the exposure did happen um, in an employment setting, then there needs to be a testing protocol followed. Um, but work restriction, again, is not necessarily a requirement if the healthcare worker remains asymptomatic. Thank you, Mary. Again, that is some great information. And, and we've seemed to have our theme during this podcast. When can we come back to work? 
It depends. And I know that makes everything seem as clear as mud to our listeners. However, it gives you the opportunity to have some decision trees and decision-making factors when you're looking at, uh, as you mentioned, Mary, was it an aerosol generating procedure or a non-aerosol generating procedure? And if it wasn't something that, uh, exposure that occurred during patient care, how long was the exposure? Um, because we know our patient care visits are longer than 15 minutes. So particularly for our business office team, how long were you around somebody? And again, for the, the clinical team, were you wearing the appropriate PPE? And appropriate is not what we individually think is appropriate, but it's appropriate by what the guidelines and the experts say, which is proper eye protection, which is not safety glasses. And it's not just, a part, not just safety glasses, it's goggles. And it's not just wearing your loops without additional protection because unless they have extra shields on them around the side and under the eye, they still have, you can still have spray and splatter come through those as well. So today's podcast, please take away the fact that it's important that you download the CDC return to work guidelines and look at some of the ways you can make decision trees in your practice. So whether it's deciding, you know, when you come back to, when a team member comes back to work based on this criteria that Olivia talked about, uh, whether it's an underlying condition and the person's health history and the severity of the illness and the five factors that Leslie talked about for determining actually what do you have? <laughs> What virus do you have with all virus soup going around and it's all the um, triple-demic that we mentioned earlier? And then, as Mary mentioned, just understanding what's the exposure like. Leslie, did you have a thought? You know, Mary, I, I wanted to make sure that our listeners knew that you can go directly to the CDC website for more information on specifics. I came across a document while researching for this podcast uh, on CDC's website, which I know you'll make available to our listeners on, as a resource, but it's called 10 Things You Can Do at Home to Manage COVID-19. And a lot of times I think people are just uncertain exactly what it is that they need to do and how they can protect the rest of their family. So in addition to learning about when you can return to work, it's important to know what to do to maintain uh, safety at home as well. And it's a little PDF that will be very, very helpful for folks. That's fantastic, Leslie. Thank you for mentioning that resource. We're going to make sure it's in the show notes as well as on our website, because there are, there are a lot of puzzles, pieces to that puzzle that happens in the home as well. How do you handle it when some of your family members or your children have COVID and how do you stay well and still be able to go to work? So thank you for sharing that resource. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Compliance Divas podcast. We bring clarity and simplicity to compliance by navigating the regulatory world to keep you on course. Please subscribe to the Compliance Divas podcast through your favorite podcast channel or on our website, thecompliancedivas.com. Any resources that we mentioned during our podcast can be found on our website as well as in today's show notes. And we invite you to submit questions to support at thecompliancedivas.com. We look forward to seeing you next week.